My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Walter Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand the conflict between China and Taiwan through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. But Balder, one more time for all of us, what is the Western bubble? I'll try my shortest version yet. Um, the West and Europe and North America in particular um, are being delusional about their place in history and their role towards the rest of the world and their sustainability in a quickly changing international environment. Every episode of this podcast follows the same structure. In order to analyze each topic, we analyze the following five questions. What are the facts where we provide a factual basis for our analysis? What is the bubble where we analyze the overarching problem of Western delusion? What is the personal bias where we see how the leaders, especially Western leaders, are affected by non-rational factors? What is the damage where we look into how and why the Western bubble is harmful? And finally, what is the future where we lay out how each topic might develop down the line? If you would like to know more about how this podcast started or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. This being said, uh, let's get to it. Um, first of all, Taiwan is an island roughly 100 miles uh, from the coast southeast of China with a population of 23 million and the capital of Taipei. Throughout history, Taiwan has been at the forefront of Pacific conflicts, especially between Japan and China. The 20th century civil war in mainland China between nationalist government forces led by Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong's Communist Party eventually led to the Kuomintang fleeing to Taiwan, where they ruled until 1987. Initially, Western powers uh, in the United Nations only recognized Taiwan, uh, the Taiwan-based government as legitimately representing the Republic of China until they switched to the People's Republic of China on mainland China. Since then, the status of Taiwan has been ambiguous at the international stage, with very few, with very few countries, only 13, fully recognizing uh, it as a sovereign state. However, the United States has continued to guarantee its autonomy from Beijing. Um, and especially in light of this, and the reason why we are talking about uh, this topic overall, was uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House of Representatives in the United States, the third highest ranking uh, official in the United States, about her visit um, to Taiwan uh, two, two weeks ago, um, the highest ranking U.S. visit in the past 25 years. Um, Balder, let us know very quickly, why was this such a big deal? Well, it's a big deal for China, uh, as it is another symbolic step in recognizing uh, Taiwan's independence, uh, which is something that the United States, in a practical sense, has been doing for a long time. But um, uh, this is just uh, a slap in the face, as the Chinese call it, uh, for their claims that Taiwan is an automatic, legitimate part of mainland China, and that there is no such thing as foreign dignitaries who can come and visit without Chinese approval. And so the Chinese response to this was a five-day military exercise around the island of Taiwan, um, where it effectively uh, blocked uh, its sea access um, with, uh, I mean, uh, missiles being fired over the island um, and uh, planes uh, basically crossing this middle line that has been established. Um, basically, the, well, the biggest provocations uh, we have seen uh, up to date. Um, furthermore, um, the, the Chinese uh, government had published a white paper um, further, I mean, again, establishing that uh, Taiwan is part of China and that if needed, uh, it will be taken uh, by force. 
And as a response to this, and as a response to these military exercises, the United States uh, continued to basically show its military presence in the region uh, by uh, sending a few few military ships uh, through the Taiwan Strait. Um, and then I think just just a few days ago, uh, another another delegation of U.S. Uh, government representatives uh, well, visited they, Taiwan. They're still here as we're speaking. We're recording this on the fifteenth of August, and um, they're they're still there at the moment. Um, it's um, it's clearly the United States um, making a gesture towards China about saying, hey, we haven't forgotten about Taiwan. And you have to see this very much in the light of Ukraine, right? There was a lot of talk, especially early on in the first one or two weeks of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, that China would be looking at this as a test case for if they could do something similar to Taiwan. Um, those That kind of analysis was exaggerated. Uh, China doesn't have any... Um, short-term plans to invade Taiwan, um, as far as we we can tell. Uh, And certainly with the problems that Russia is facing in Ukraine, it's becoming a much less attractive option for Beijing uh, as time goes by. But it is the United States basically saying, hey, I know that we are busy with Ukraine and we're worried about Russia, but we haven't forgotten about you, China, and we certainly haven't forgotten about our allies in the Pacific, specifically Taiwan, South Korea and Japan, we're still there and we're going to support them. And in order to answer the question, why, why is the United States this far away from its own shores? Uh, basically, 100, uh, I read out earlier, 100 miles uh, from the coast uh, of mainland China. And in order to answer this, we're already going to the second category and answering the second question, what is the bubble? Boulder, why, why is the United States military and the Speaker of the House uh, so preoccupied with an island uh, of 23 million people? Um, so, I mean, in, in that sense, not very significant. But why is the United States so obsessed with this island and so present um, yeah, in, in that area? Well, so as always, there are two um, dynamics that create this bubble that, that that leads to the answer to this question. The first is history. Uh, history made the United States be interested in the Pacific, right? Um, remember, and we discussed this in the previous episode, uh, the United States was attacked by Japan first. That's how the United States got into the Second World War um, in 1941. And that made the United States all of a sudden into a very uh, active, proactive, dominant naval force in the Pacific with the Seventh Fleet ever since the end of the Second World War stationed in uh, Japan. And also um, being a protective force for the Taiwan Straits to keep the Chinese out of Taiwan in many ways. It's always leaving an ambiguous Uh, ambiguity about whether they would actually militarily intervene if China invades Taiwan or not. They're not always very clear about that. And on purpose, uh, they keep that ambiguity there. Um, History led them to that position where they play this very important strategic role in, in in the Pacific Ocean. At the same time, um, history has uh, turned the United States into the self-proclaimed victors of the Cold War and the protectors of liberal democracies worldwide. Remember that China is still nominally a communist country, is still a remnant in that way of the uh, Cold War era. 
uh, from a US perspective and the US has put itself there at the forefront as the guardians of liberalism and Taiwan uh, has moved in it. It didn't start out as a liberal democracy. It started out as a very authoritarian regime, but it has turned into a liberal democracy, very Western oriented in many ways, just like South Korea and just like Japan. And so um, that's that's sort of the historical path that led to the bubble of uh, the United States being there and believing that it has this role to play. Then there is also just the ideological path. The United States still strongly, strongly sees itself as the light on the hill that others have to follow. And by letting China bully Taiwan, they would um, basically be signaling to the world that they're no longer this police force that is there to defend everyone who wants to be free and democratic and like the United States. So when it comes to Nancy Pelosi visiting uh, Taiwan, I mean, this in itself was a highly symbolic uh, visit. There was no important agreement signed. She can't do that anyways. Um, there were there was no no immediate success. There was there was no real impact of her visiting. So that was highly symbolic, which I mean, kind of transfers to the situation of Taiwan, where it's really just all about s symbols here. Taiwan is, I mean, as I mentioned in the beginning. When it comes to uh, military, it's not necessarily a big military might. Um, it does hold some important uh, position in the world when it comes to, to the production of computer chips. Um, so, so there, it, there, it has some significance uh, to the world there. But this small island of 23 million people is mostly about symbolism. It's about this Western liberal project where Taiwan is part of it being protected against China and the United States saying that, hey, we are here to protect every single liberal democracy out there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, uh, like you said, Taiwan does have some uh, practical importance, not just its economy. It is a relatively rich country with important product, uh, production lines, as you said, uh, computer chips, but also a lot of high tech exports that it has. It, it also has some practical strategic importance because of its placing in the South China Sea, uh, well, with respect to the sea lanes that are the most fundamental arteries, if you like, of the global economy, right, that go around um, from Japan, South Korea, all the way around towards India and then um, towards the Middle East and towards Africa and eventually Europe. Though there is some practical importance, but it's mostly symbolism. It's mostly the United States saying to those it has designated free liberal democracies, we are here for you, we will uh, defend you, and we will not let you be bullied by evil authoritarian regimes like the one in Beijing. And that um, is very sti much still from that mindset of we are the good guys, initially fighting the evil communists of the Cold War and now fighting the evil authoritarian communists of the 21st century. And when we then talk about this topic, especially evil communism against Western liberalism and that heroic fight of the United States uh, to protect everyone, um, is it then also about this wishful thinking or, and this is something that has come up in the news more and more, uh, especially in light of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, I mean, the listeners know that I'm German by nationality and then especially the Germans always believed in Wandel durch Handel, in change through trade. Is that at some point 
by simply involving China enough in the world economy and by giving them uh, yeah, you know, prosperity and building a strong middle class that at some point they would turn democratic. Is it also about this ideological, almost philosophical fight? Um, I mean, what's the role? What's the role of this wishful thinking that oh, China one day is going to turn into a democracy, just like Taiwan did? Yeah, there is. I mean, it's 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 very hard to sustain that kind of idea right now. I but it's it's very pervasive still. It's it's still the deeply ingrained in Western policymakers this idea that they are the vanguard of history that they're taking the globe into this deterministic direction of freedom and liberalism based on exactly as you said the Austrian school thinking based on the writing from Hayek and Mises and others who, who argued that once you reach a certain level of um, economic prosperity with a strong middle class what the middle class wants to do is protect its assets protect its wealth from a oppressive regime from an oppressive authority and therefore they will push the country to become democratic to liberalize to take authority and powers away from the government and put it in the hands of neutral institutions that that is still a very pervasive um philosophy in foreign policy making uh, uh, among western diplomats and 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 strategists and governments and that's very clearly at work here and in many ways you mentioned um international trade and the this idea that international trade will accelerate this process it will create a stronger middle class and then that middle class will push for reform was hugely, hugely influential in the way that the West treated China in the 1990s. Um, after the fall of the Soviet Union, China was already sort of seen as not as bad as Moscow, right? I mean, Moscow was the real enemy. The Soviet Union was the real enemy. China was also communist, but China and Moscow, uh, China and the Russia, Beijing and Moscow never really got along. In fact, they had very significant tensions, uh, strategic tensions, despite being communist, both of them. And there was this sense that China doesn't really want to be part of this Soviet game. They don't really want to be communist. So the moment that the uh, Soviet Union fell, there was this idea that all the West had to do was uh, embrace them into their global system of trade, um, their global prosperity, and China would automatically become one of them, become Western. See, I, I very much remember this, this sentiment growing up um, the first time I encountered it was, was with the 2008 uh, Summer Olympic Games in, in uh, Beijing, where there was this feeling of, oh, wow, look at China, how much they accomplished in the past few uh, decades. They've created these amazing Olympic Games, um, big stadiums, welcoming culture, open to the world. Oh, this is, really seems to be working. Um, and then in contrast, you had the uh, Winter Olympic Games um, in February of 2022, where it was the complete opposite, uh, where you had strong and intense COVID rules, uh, you had um, athletes being warned before the games uh, not to use uh, their phones, only to use uh, secure communication, not to speak out against human rights violations. Um, so you had, I mean, so you have this change, but in these years in between, I very much um, got the sentiment from everywhere in the news that 
oh, you know what, wait until those 400 million people who are now making this Chinese middle class, wait until they are demanding their rights. They will turn into democracy soon. They will have huge internal struggles. And now a few years later, we see that there are domestic problems in China, um, but they are not necessarily leading or pushing towards a, a systemic change, right? Absolutely. Um, it's And there are two really interesting conversations to be had here. Um, maybe in future podcasts, uh, future episodes, we can spend more time on it. But uh, one is whether uh, Hayek, Hayek's and uh, the Austrian school's ideas actually hold any value in terms of China, whether whether they're globally applicable, because there is some elegance to their to their thought systems, right? There is there's some elegance to the ideas that they have. And 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 China is definitely putting them to the test. Um, and it's never necessarily black or white. It's not like, oh, they were completely wrong or they're completely right. But the oversimplified version that Western strategists have in their minds when it comes to this, like obviously that middle class is going to democratize China, that seems unsustainable as a thought process now what whether 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 there's some kind of grain of truth still in there and that could actually lead to changes within china that is something very interesting to analyze um but it is very unlikely that those changes would lead to a western liberal democracy in the way that the united states or paris or london would like and that's one conversation to be had and the, the other conversation that is the real sense of betrayal uh, that that exists in the west that china didn't follow this path right there's a real sense of anger uh, and, and that how could you we opened our arms uh, generously we let you trade with us we made everything possible in the 1990s we didn't put any pressure on you you could enter our beautiful global institutions um, and how could you then betray us by not becoming like us, right? There's this real, real, real resentment about that. And, and even worse, how can you use these international institutions against us now? No, exactly. By, by, by being the main donor to some of them and, and very much becoming a, a global power with, within the frames that the West has provided. And, 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 and it's, not it's just now betraying China. Yeah, and, and with Xi Jinping actually openly announcing this that china has a model that is different from the west and that it's their aspiration for the rest of the world to follow the chinese model i mean it's uh, talking about a slap in the face right it's it's china basically sticking up the middle finger to the west and say well thank you very much but we're going to go our own way now and so this is the reason i mean this is the bubble then why this taiwan issue is so intense is because you actually have a competing system you know, on, on the world stage. I mean, you mentioned this earlier that Russia does not really offer an alternative. Russia is just really aggressive in its foreign policy. And this is why Russia is a problem for the West. But when it comes to China, um, you have a real force. I mean, we've mentioned this in the, in the, in the past as well, is that these 400 million uh, people in the middle class, well, they didn't come from nowhere. They came in the last, well, basically they did come from nowhere because they suddenly emerged in the last 40 years where 400 million people were elevated out of poverty in a system that is not based on the western system but that might prove to be more efficient under different circumstances yeah absolutely so uh, russia is 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 a rival in a very simple for to the west in a very simple like traditional strategic sense uh, russia wants to be respected on the world stage uh, russia wants a bit of territory here and there and this is me not 
belittling uh, Ukraine uh, when I say a bit of territory. But what I mean to say is that from a Western perspective, Russia is a threat in the sense of expansion of its sphere of influence and not much more. Um, that is completely different from how China is a rival. China is actually saying all that you thought you were, Western countries, United States, Canada, European countries, everything that you thought you represented, this whole deterministic path of history that you were leading the world into, it's a bit of nonsense. And we are going to show you how to do things differently. And we're going to show the world how to do things differently. And we are going to use our incredible resources to provide a completely different model. So it's an existential threat to the West in many ways, at least to the Western model in that sense. Whereas Russia is not an existential threat. Russia has no interest in conquering um, uh, Madrid or Paris or London, but they don't even have much interest in changing the government systems in Madrid or London or, or Paris. Whereas China doesn't want to conquer either, but they want to absolutely change the way the world organizes itself. So consequently, and this is, is, a, is a bit more provoca a provocative statement, if Taiwan followed a different political system, if Taiwan wasn't a democracy, would we, based, based on the argument we've laid out, then the West would not care about it, about China's aggression towards Taiwan. Is this, is this the intuition? I mean, because I'm, I'm just trying to see whether we have the intuition right here, where Taiwan is being protected by the West because it stands as uh, like the absolute, basically opposite to the Chinese system. But if, if Taiwan were to be, let's say, an authoritarian system as well, then the West wouldn't be so interested in protecting it in, in the end. Yeah, only in um, probably, I mean, in the sense of strategically wanting to limit Chinese expansion, there would still be some interest in Taiwan. And if Taiwan says to the United States, please help us, uh, it might have you know, the United States in that scenario would probably still aid in some way and, and, and try to play some kind of role. But it certainly wouldn't be such a big deal as it is now. They would certainly wouldn't send the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, to Taiwan right now. Uh, they It w wouldn't lead to this outrage in Western media about uh, the Chinese having these military exercises and... Um, uh, anything like that. Exactly. So the, 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 there is this real sense, especially by the United States, supported by Western, uh, by European powers, that they have this moral, almost sacred duty to protect liberalism. And if they can't protect Taiwan, then that would just mean that their era of geopolitical dominance is over. Right? It, it, it would just signify that... Uh, they can no longer claim to represent this free world in the way that they very much would like to. And based on this, we have the personal bias, where you have Pres U.S. President Joe Biden and uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, who, I mean, they are very long friends and close friends, uh, because there was this talk uh, before Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan that, Oh, why is she why is she backstabbing Joe Biden? He's he has no interest in antagonizing China like this. Um, but Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi are both very much products, and we talked about this in the last episode on the fall of US uh, foreign policy. They're both very much products of this time where the United States became the world police, um, and now it needs to continue 
to be that, at least for them. Absolutely. And the idea that uh, Biden has no interest in antagonizing China is, of course, uh, ridiculous. Uh, it, was the, it was a surprise to anyone who pays attention, I think. But uh, certainly to my professional circles around me, we were all incredibly surprised by how quickly and how aggressively Biden went after China the moment he became president. Uh, it's it's one thing to still see China as a rival, but the way that straight away he signaled to the rest of the world, China is our, essentially our enemy. We are going to limit China. China is our big headache and we will deal with them. In many ways, he stepped up the rhetoric from the Trump era. Um, and he did so out of a real sense of personal, again, resentment anger whereas trump we've talked about trump briefly in the past trump doesn't have an ideology donald trump doesn't have a vision of the world biden was about numbers it was about numbers and if he could deal with china if it was useful for him he would deal with china if it was useful to antagonize china he would antagonize china um, the same with north korea uh, trump was transactional he just wanted to see what he could get out of something he didn't have a moral or philosophical framework in mind Biden, on the other hand, is absolutely this child from the Cold War who believes that the 1990s legitimized the United States in its position in the world. Uh, again, let me remind you, because people should be reminded of this, what a promoter he was of the war in Iraq in 2003. Uh, he, was, he is someone who deeply, deeply believes in the liberal project. And he believes that China was not just a challenge for the project, but betrayed that project by not fulfilling the promise that they never made, by the way, but that the West thought that they made in the 1990s about becoming one of them. And uh, keep in mind that there's even a sense of um, anger about the fact that they gave, as they call it, right, because it was a colony, Hong Kong back to China. And look at what China is doing. It. Well, <laughs> you know, what do you want? But no, the, the idea was, well, we, we give you Hong Kong, but we believe that this is part of a process of you becoming like Hong Kong, not Hong Kong becoming like you. And now that the fact that it turns out that mainland China says to uh, Hong Kong, well, sorry, now that you're part of our territory, it's, it's, it's up to you to learn from us and not the other way around. People like Biden are furious, and it's 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 really personal in that in in that sense. Not so much. I don't know if he has any anti-Chinese, you know, um, cultural or ethnic bias, but from an ideological perspective, it's personal because he believes that he needs to lead the United States into this 21st century where it takes the world towards freedom. And Pelosi is, I mean, she's one year older than him, so she's the product of the same thinking. Absolutely the same. Another, and what they have in common, both of them, is that they are part of this real democratic establishment, right? So they, 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 they're not intellectuals in the sense of questioning the foundations of liberal democracy or they're, they're not the vanguard of the Democratic Party. They, they're not the, the young generation that is trying to re-identify re uh, what the United States has to stand for. They're not the Bernie Sanders of this world who try to sort of go back to fundamentals of making American society great. They are democratic establishment, democratic party establishment and democratic philosophy establishment. And they believe that they have all the answers, that they don't need, don't need to reinvent the wheel anymore. And the only question is, how can they make the world see 
the superiority of their model. And they, they, they're very confused and almost, um, almost angry about the fact that the rest of the world doesn't seem to catch on, that the rest of the world doesn't say, oh yeah, United States, we all should be like you. They, they don't understand that because that's how they've grown up for decades and they seem to be legitimized by that until 9-11. And so now they're in a very confused state of mind. Is, is China then, then showing any signs of taking Western democracy seriously? Well, the, the interesting thing is that China um, is becoming less democratic and in many ways less liberal over the past 10 years or so. And something that was never properly recognized in the West was that even though it had the label of communism, um, the Chinese political system in the 80s, very consciously so after the death of Chairman Mao, um, became quite sophisticated in terms of its politi political rivalries and in, in terms of factionism. Uh, this was all to avoid having another, if you like, dictator like Mao um, because the chi Chinese leadership understood that that had not been productive for the well-being of the, the nation. And they created a very sophisticated political system based on decentralizing power within the party. You've got the six million party members, communist party members, It's true that there are no democratic elections, but there was a very dynamic political environment in Beijing, um, and purposefully so. In the 80s, in the 90s, and in the early 21st century. But now, with Xi Jinping uh, having come to power, China is actually becoming more authoritarian, more centralized with power around him. Um, he's doing this on purpose. There are two different ways of interpreting why he's doing this. Um, he's doing it either because he generally believes that he's, he's this great leader that can take China and the world towards a Chinese future, or he believes it's needed in order to deal with domestic problems that China has, and China has some very significant domestic issues, economic, social, um, political uh, problems, and he felt that the way to Uh, deal with that maybe is to centralize power around him. But the fact is that rather than becoming more like the West, China has become less than uh, less like the West. Even its economic system, which was very liberal on purpose uh, in order to be able to export easily to Western markets, is becoming more controlled, more centralized. So in many ways, the West is absolutely failing in any goals to make China one of them their own, right? It's sort of, it's, it, if you have any sense of strategy towards a world where everyone becomes like the West, then that strategy has failed very, very clearly so. And I think this, this a large part of that is that the West has dealt with China in absolutely a unproductive, uh, inefficient, ineffective way, basically making China feel as if it is illegitimate because of its authoritarianism. The West is so in its own bubble about liberalism that it, it picks and chooses which author, um, authoritarian regimes it likes and it doesn't like. In the case of Saudi Arabia, it leaves it alone. But in the case of China, it very much goes after uh, Beijing, say, you are not part of us, you're not part of this world. And what you see then is that China reacts against that, right? It's an anti-reaction. And, and a symptom of this or an example of this is then the, this Chinese wolf warrior diplomacy. Um, so based on this Chinese movie um, where 
in I think this started shortly before COVID. At least that's the that's the first time I heard about it, where suddenly Chinese diplomats had a different way of approaching Western diplomats. But I th I think you're you're better able to explain this because you've actually heard about this from Western diplomats themselves. Yeah, it's 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 essentially a tactic, but one that is very near the 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 heart of how diplomats and strategists in China are now being raised and being educated. It is forgetting um, any sense of uh, humility or modesty that China used to have quite a lot. China in the 20th century uh, used to play a very low-key kind of diplomatic game. Uh, we, we, yes, we are a big country, but we, we don't feel that we should be uh, aggressive in any way, shape or form. We don't have any ambitions outside of our own border. We're taking it easy. Um, and now that's been turned into the opposite. No, we are China, we are a global superpower, and we will aggressively pursue our interest, and not just our interest, we will pursue the fact that we are a great nation with um, nationalist roots, and that we have a superior system to those around us. And transmitting that through diplomats leads to diplomats at times i mean it is a tactic it's not it's a tactic based on an ideology that's deeply ingrained in in, in the modern day thinking of chinese strategists of saying um we will put you down if we need to put you down we will fight you if we need to fight you we will um show you the competitive side of the chinese dragon if you like um, and that is something that is relatively new and that is very much in line with this idea of China feeling disrespected by the West and reacting against that. Uh, very much using diplomatic violence in order to combat violence, right? And, and, it, and, and from a Western perspective, because that's what we're mostly interested in, because we're Westerners, it is the consequence of just bad strategy. It, it wasn't necessary. Um, wolf warrior diplomacy could have been avoided if the West had dealt with China differently in a less condescending tone, in a less dismissive tone, less worried about the authoritarian aspect of China. But instead, they created this monster themselves. And so one of the Western institutions that is, at least in my perception, most dismissive towards, towards Chinese interests is the media. Um, so kind of to, uh, to this is our, our third answer to what is the personal bias. Um, let's let's look at the media here, and I think it was pretty obvious in the past three weeks. Uh, again, we were recording on the fifteenth of August, um, so a week and a half or two weeks after Nancy Pelosi's uh, visit to Taiwan, but even leading up to it, um, because there was this leak of her schedule. Um, so first, there then you had this whole bubbles, so this whole media bubble obsessing about, oh, is she going, is she not, what type of signal is descending? Um, then the the hours before the visit, uh, people were tracking her, were tracking her flight, and there were life ticker news items uh, everywhere, and oh, is she landing, is she not, is she maybe just scaring them? Um, and then when she landed there, every single step of hers was, was kind of broadcasted. But more importantly, afterwards, you had the Chinese reaction. Um, a, if you see this from a Chinese perspective, legitimate reaction that, oh, you've just, um, like a foreign dignitary has just stepped foot on our land. Um, then this, this reaction was portrayed in, yeah, in, a, in an even more aggressive way, despite it not being 
a super serious escalation as opposed to what they what they announced before, right? Yeah, so it, it is one of those typical examples um, that it's not explicit, but implicitly there is this continuous, very deep bias in the way the media portrays Taiwan, China, and, and, and this whole affair. Um, let's take a step back. If you pay attention to all those stories written about um, the Chinese military exercises, which, by the way, have have been happening, right? And it's obviously China saber-rattling. It's, it's China saying, be careful, United States, be careful, Taiwan. Um, in, according to our own perspective, we can uh, move into Taiwan at any time because it's our own territory. It's not a foreign. It's not a foreign country. It's part of China, and we have the military means to do so. And by the way, they do because most of their military is focused on the Pacific, on regional uh, strength, um, and so they 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 absolutely have the military means to invade Taiwan if they wanted to. That's there, but the way that the media has portrayed that, and then if you compare that to the way that Western media portrays the United States military presence, basically everywhere around the world with drone strikes, killing people everywhere around the world, um, um, NATO expanding its borders more and more, um, arguably eventually leading to uh, Putin being triggered into, into invading Ukraine. Um, it is the... the it, Lack of balance in reporting is astounding to to watch, right? So I, I'm not I'm not denying the, the the threat here that China poses to Taiwan and Taiwan, as far as uh, opinion polls suggest, does do not want to be incorporated by China, and we should and that should be respected. Um, but if you compare China just basically in its own backyard in a very complex situation with Taiwan doing some military exercises, how that gets portrayed versus the fact that Western powers have militarization throughout the world and not just exercises, they actually actively engage militarily throughout the world is of course completely out of whack. It is, it is a, it, it shows the blindness that we have towards our own actions militarily towards the world and, and the love we have for portraying China as this aggressive monster about to eat poor, innocent countries around it. Yeah, I think, I mean, what struck me the most is, uh, I think this was a piece in Foreign Policy that I read two days ago um, that talked about the relative calmness of the Taiwanese population during this military exercise. Um, and the way they explained this, uh, the Taiwanese saying that oh, this is normal. <laughs> We've been living under this threat of, of any Chinese military exercise for decades now. Um, this is nothing new. And at the same time, you have uh, almost a, a hysteria um, in, in, in Western media about this situation, about these exercises in particular. Complete hysteria. And it's, it's true. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I would have to check the statistics. But I think on a yearly basis, uh, Chinese airplanes um, violate Taiwanese airspace like 50 times or something. Now, these exercises on average. Uh, these exercises are a bit more than that. These exercises are a bit more aggressive, but it is not something completely out of the norm. And again, this is between China and Taiwan, which is a very difficult, complex situation. And it's 
uh, not me legitimizing Chinese aggression towards Taiwan. It's just that it is incomparable to the aggressive nature of Western foreign policy. But we're not hysterical about that. The West has invaded countries. The West is bombing places. But we let that be. And instead, we focus on a, a nation that has shown very little interest in um, in a territorial conquest, has shown very little interest in the past in aggressively um, fighting overseas and try to portray them as some kind of threat to world peace. And I think this leads us very well into uh, the fourth category and answering the fourth question, what is the damage? Because you, you have the media giving this general image of China being the aggressor. Um, then, as we discussed uh, at length, you have uh, Western policymakers um, very much believing in, yeah, in, in the Western bubble. Um, but the, the question is, and, and what, is, what is the damage of this? Because, I mean, so far, at least in hard military escalation, you haven't had anything. Um, but leading, I mean, leading up to this, uh, what's the damage of years or decades of this Western ambiguity towards uh, the China, the China-Taiwan conflict? Well, so it takes a little bit. A step like this takes a little bit of ambiguity away, right? It doesn't remove it entirely, but what it does is it's it's a, it's a signal of the United States to China saying, "Don't you dare get into Taiwan. We take Taiwan seriously," and all that. And that removing of, of ambiguity is probably not even in Taiwan's interest, right? It is, it is in the interest of the United States of escalating this violence, uh, at least this violent rhetoric towards China. And China will respond in kind. So what it does is it's the first bit of damage is an escalation at a time that the West should try to de-escalate. It, it is the West trying to show that they're still strong and um, that, that they will not let uh, China do to Taiwan what uh, Russia did to Ukraine and that they're still the ones in charge. But in reality, what it does, it motivates China even more to look at Taiwan and to look at its surroundings and say, how can we actually fight this Western oppression, this Western liberalism that uh, is, has so arrogantly been portrayed as the deterministic path of humanity. It, it's basically, it leads to more violent rhetoric, more violent diplomacy, more um, uh, wolf warriors uh, being sent out from Beijing. And it actually will make it less likely that the, that the world looks at the West as a global leader. It, it's, that, it's a kind of short-termism um, rather than looking at a bigger, longer-term picture. If the West really, really would like to continue portray themselves as a beacon to follow, as the light on the hill. They need to look internally at, at, at their own societies. They may need to make their own society stronger, focus on how to actually become a place that other countries want to emulate, rather than messing around with what China is allowed to do or not in its own backyard. See, I want to especially that word backyard um because this is kind of at least to me and this is another proactive statement here um just imagine that china uh would 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 say that as soon as the united states makes a move or another move on cuba that uh china china would react and china would protect cuba and let's say now i mean china is i think they just finished their third aircraft carrier 
So the, just imagine that, that China was sent that aircraft carrier towards the coast of Cuba and basically stayed United States no step further. This is our ideological system. These are our brothers. Um, as soon as you make a move towards Cuba, we're going to protect. I mean, just imagine the outrage. Just imagine the, the military might that, that the United States would then, I mean, all 23 aircraft carriers would be pulled together immediately. Yeah, absolutely. And we it's funny that you mentioned Cuba because we've had exactly this situation with the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? With the Soviet Union exactly trying to do that. Uh, I know that that was the Cold War, but that's essentially what Biden has been creating again, right? Washington wants a Cold War with China in many ways because they seem to believe that rather than dealing with their own internal issues, what they need to do is define themselves, provide a new 21st century U.S. identity by opposing China. And, 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 and that's so therefore recreating a Cold War in the 21st century is exactly seems to have been the strategy that Biden chose to have at the very beginning of his presidency. And that got mildly interrupted by the invasion of Ukraine. And this, I mean, you, we mentioned this earlier, but this is the West horribly overstretching, overreaching, um, and with this setting, setting this overreach up for failure. Absolutely. They, they do not have the capacity to deal with this. They do not have the diplomatic or economic means to impose their will on the world. And they should understand that if they, and, 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 and I say they in the sense of, me as well, right? I want to be part of a beautiful Western project. I love to live in a liberal democratic country. I love, I mean, I live in Spain and I love it here and I would not quickly move to Beijing myself. Um, for one, because I wouldn't be able to record this podcast. Uh, I would love the West to succeed. If they want to succeed, they have to stop fighting other systems. They just have to become stronger and better at what they do internally. They have to solve the very significant problems that their own societies face. And then the rest of the world will look at that and say, hey, you know what, I kind of like that. I would like a piece of that. And that's a long-term process. See, because we talked about the media earlier, exactly this question or this, I mean, because it's portrayed as the struggle of the systems. So it's the Western system against the Chinese system. But the struggle is not being fought or dealt with um, on a let's try to be better than this. It's this perspective of we are already better, so now we just need to keep the other system down and 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 convince others that we are better. But how do we convince them? It's through a very much oh, we are better. Just trust us. Yeah, it's it's exactly that. It is feeling that that it's been proven. There's the superiority has been proven. And those upstarts who sort of deny that need to be put down. And what that leads to, it leads to anti-reactions. It leads to violence. I mean, when I say violence, I don't necessarily mean just violence in terms of fighting and shooting and destruction, physical destruction, but violence in terms of diplomacy, violence in terms of um, economic fights that aren't necessary. It is absolutely in the interest of the West to stop putting China down. Let China be China, you be you, United States be United States, and let's see which one is stronger. Let's see which one is better. Um, that doesn't mean that there are never any strategic concerns that should be addressed. I mean, Taiwan is a strategic concern to a certain extent. More importantly, Japan, South Korea. Um, 
long-term allies of the United States, it's fine that the United States has some interest there and, and, and if necessary, even uses its seventh fleet to say to China, please know that there are limits to what you can do. I have no problem with that. But this obsession with putting China down rather than improving itself is what in the end will lead to the West's downfall. Which moves us to the to the fifth category and the fifth question, what is the future? And here, and I cannot believe that I am saying this, but is it maybe that the Europeans um, have so far a, a bit of a better approach than the United States to this? Because uh, you already mentioned uh, South Korea and Japan, long-term allies. And why are they long-term allies? Because of very strong economic ties, because after the war, also cultural ties, a lot of exchange programs, there's a lot of just cultural exchange happening. And then um, the, the European Union has also recently moved into the backyard of the Chinese, but by uh, um, by starting this free trade agreement uh, with Vietnam, where there you have exactly this. So Vietnam is already not a friend of China. Um, and now European Union is pulling Vietnam closer to it through this tr uh, trade agreement. I mean, whether this is still part of this old Wandel durch Handel, uh, potentially changing Vietnam through trade, um, is, is up for discussion and future analysis. But you already have this, this basically, hey, here, we are going to trade with you and let's, let's not move towards China. Let's move towards Europe. Is that, is that a better approach um, than this militaristic way of doing it that the United States is currently following. Yeah, absolutely way better. And I, I don't think it's necessarily so international trade is very useful, even if it doesn't lead to um, authoritarian regimes becoming liberal or democratic. Right. I mean, just the fact that Europe is communicating not just to Vietnam, but to China in a very different way. Um, to to uh, Asia Pacific in general in a much more open way is much more productive even if China and other regimes do not change. I mean, Vietnam is still nominally communist as well. Um, Vietnam doesn't have to renounce its communist roots in order to benefit from learning from Europe and vice versa, Europe learning from Vietnam. Um, and, and that is a path in which if your model, if your political model is indeed superior, then countries that you're openly communicating and working with are going to look at that and learn from that. And they're going to emulate you at some point in the future. And, and Europe, Europe understands that way better, apparently, than the United States in the 21st mm. century. I mean, this is something that I've claimed, uh, I think, two, three years ago uh, during the time of Brexit is that I, Europe's biggest influence, at least from my perception of the world, is just through its standards. Is that, that uh, what was it, the data protection um, regulation, where now we, we always have to accept cookies, is widely used over the world. I mean, other countries have just adapted to it because Europe set the highest standard, and so let's just follow it, which, I mean, it, it just, I mean, that, through, through that way, through that regulation, um, maybe the European Union has done more for privacy rights in other countries than it could have done in any other way in, in anywhere in the world. Absolutely. And if you look at the long-term consequences of that, that goes way beyond clicking on a few things on your computer if you live in Hanoi or wherever you are. It, 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 it has consequences for um, your psychological connection to Europe as a, as a diplomat, as a strategist, as a politician. It means that um, Europe 
provided a solution to a problem you had in your country, in your nation. And as a result, you're more open next time to, to listen to them again and talk to them. If you have a government and a nation that tells you that you're illegitimate, that you are wrong in everything that you do because you're not allowed to be authoritarian, and um, as long as you stay authoritarian, they will fight you on that, that is a surefire way to make them um, get entrenched in their own position. And, and even just on a personal level. I mean, if someone tells me, no, you're wrong, uh, you can't do it this way, uh, how, how convincing is that? Um, I, at least as a child, I was never convinced by that. Absolutely. And no, no, yeah, absolutely right. And this is something that I actually, um, if a sort of a reverse example here, but it's related to this openness between Europe and, and, and China um, that I notice is that I've, I've never worked with China as a consultant or as an analyst, um, and, and I'm not in any way an expert on China, but we've got at IE University, we've got Chinese students. And a lot of those students get sent here to learn and then to go back and to maybe become diplomats or policy consultants or analysts or anything like that. And I try to tell them, if you continue writing essays in which you're basically saying everything China does is correct and everything that the West does is wrong, then you're going to be really, really bad at your job. You need to be able to learn from Europe and from the, the United States, just like the United States and Europe need to be able to learn from China. And you need to be open to reality where it's not a fight between superior and inferior models. And, and you very clearly notice that Chinese model uh, students right now going to Europe come here with a mindset of fighting the Western system. They come here with a mindset of we are being brought up, having learned that some things are absolute truths and China is on the right side of history and the West is on the wrong side of history and we are nationalists and we're going to defend that. And that is really, really unproductive if you want to help your own country, in this case, China. Exactly. So it's weakening your own country. And so China has been doing this for estimate of 20 years now, maybe? Yeah, um, maybe 10, maybe the, 10, 10 even, because 20 years ago, they were still relatively humble. So, so 10 years ago, but I mean, what I'm trying to hint at is that the West has been doing this for 70 years now. Um, I mean, again, we, we have well, never 300. Really given, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I was more looking at the at the end of the, of the, of the Second World War, but I, even in the last episode, we weren't able to pinpoint uh, the moment um, when, when US foreign policy started falling. Um, but so, so you are basically a further weakening uh, the West, and this is part of what is the future: is that you you further weaken the West. Yeah, you you make the West less likely to prevail in this in this path towards tomorrow, right? Um, into who the world is gonna follow. Um, from a very strategic, practical perspective, as you mentioned before, the West is horribly overstretched. They they cannot commit the resources they would need to have all these fires across the globe. Um, and so um, from a Western perspective, what, what is absolutely needed is to take it a notch down, to leave ambiguity, not, not to let Taiwan just be overrun by, um, the, by Beijing. Um, and and they, they still have strategic interest, but not to try to escalate and antagonize um, uh, actors around the world. That is not the way forward for 
Western uh, diplomacy and policymaking. And I, and I hope that, that at some point this message will get through to them. At the same time, the future will very much depends, depend on internal politics within China itself. And we can't really judge it. Taiwan is sort of like the stable factor here, right? Taiwan doesn't have much. Taiwan tries to keep things low key. Taiwan just wants to get on with it without having to make hard choices. That makes a lot of sense. But from a Chinese perspective, it will very much depend on the position of Xi Jinping within Beijing. Uh, How strong is he? How deep are the domestic problems that China faces? We know that they face problems. We don't know to what extent they actually are an existential threat or not to the current Chinese model. And how will... Xi Jinping and other policymakers react at a foreign policy level to that. So typically what you see, if domestically there is trouble on the horizon, then foreign policymaking becomes a way to buy time. This is what Moscow tried to do with the invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. This has been a common threat throughout um, a his- human history that foreign policymaking can give you a little bit of space to deal with internal problems at home. And in some ways, this is what Biden tried to do with making China the, cold, the new Cold War threat, but not, not, having, not being able to deal with problems at home within the United States. They say, okay, we're going to define ourselves as not China, as the ones who fight China. Now, depending on the internal weakness of China, um, their foreign policy will become more or less aggressive towards Taiwan and towards their environment. Well, this seems like a great moment uh, to end today's conversation on the conflict between uh, China and Taiwan. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to jhasenstab at rayagroup.org and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure, make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. This is it from my side. Um, Balder, what closing, what closing quote did you bring for us today? Uh, I decided to uh, use a very well-known quote from uh, one of the greatest speakers of the 20th century, Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, And I don't mean this quote in terms of pacifism necessarily, but more in terms of the diplomatic and economic violence that we've just discussed in this podcast. Um, In spite of temporary victories, violence never brings permanent peace. It solves no social problem. It merely creates new and more complicated ones. Violence is impractical because it is a descending spiral ending in destruction for all. It is immoral because it seeks to humiliate the opponent rather than win his understanding. It seeks to annihilate rather than convert. Mm